the Making Sense of Life podcast number 55. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja, as we continue to explore this incredibly challenging and complex world. And we've got a special guest again today. Uh, we w- want to welcome back John Wyatt. John, it's great to have you again. Hi, thanks, Sunil. It's good to be here. So if you've listened to previous podcasts, you know that <laughs> I said to John that John is Dr. Death. Um, sorry, sorry, John, to, put it, to describe you like that. But we've talked a lot about dying on previous podcasts. On podcast 17, we talked about the last taboo subject. Um, uh, particularly around the area of euthanasia and how topical that is a subject in in our world about people at the end of life with serious illnesses wanting to end their lives and what does that really mean and and the implications of that as well as what does it mean to die well and John's written a book called simply Dying Well and we discussed that in podcast 4950 podcast 49 we call The Strange Adventure We Must All Take and although it may seem a very somber subject which it is um, we hope it's very practical and helps us to think about something, something that we don't talk much about. But just tell us a little bit more about why you wrote that book first as well. Yes, I, I'm really convinced that, um, that sadly this is a great taboo subject. People find it very difficult to talk about death, both the, the possibility of somebody close to them who is dying or also about their own death. And so um, I wrote this book really just to try to help and encourage people to to start talking about death, uh, talking about it with their loved ones, talking about it with their doctors, um, because I'm convinced that it isn't all negative, it isn't all loss. In fact, dying you know can be a, a strange adventure. There are um, positive and uh, life affirming things that can come from the process of dying well, and that's what that podcast is particularly about. But then there are also temptations and challenges um, which dying people can face. And uh, by talking about these in advance, by preparing ourselves, by learning more from other people who've gone before us, we can prepare ourselves to die well. Yeah, thank you. And I just really really thank you for writing this, this book and for the courage to write this book on what is an incredibly sensitive subject, which, as you're saying, we don't like to face and talk up to. And yet it's inevitable. You know, the, the last I checked is 100% of people died, and that is the strange adventure we're all going to take. And in so many other areas of life, we, we make precautions, we make sure that we, simple things like putting our seatbelts on when we drive a car, doesn't mean to say we're being morbid about it, that we might have an accident. We, 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 we buy insurance for all sorts of things. Um, and to die well actually means to live well. Um, and to live with confidence. And whatever our background, wherever we're from, we want to live life 
confident about where we're coming from and where we're going. Um, do you want to say something about yeah, that? Yeah, well, I, th- I think I think that's absolutely right. And yes, it is interesting that we find this perhaps one of the hardest subjects to talk about. You know, modern people we can talk about sex and orgasms, and we can talk about painful things like abuse in our past and. Uh, lots of topics that we can talk about but when it comes to death and particularly our own death or the death of people close to us then it becomes this is still something that we can't talk about and um, unfortunately what I've seen sometimes is this this leads into a whole kind of game playing in a a negative way in a bad way so um, sometimes the dying person themselves is playing a game like they're not they're not being honest they're they're sort of saying everything's fine you know Mm. And then the relatives don't want to raise the possibility. Maybe they're very traumatized about the fact that this person is dying. So they join in and say, yeah, I'm sure you're feeling better. And let's not talk about you know, the future. And, and then sometimes doctors get caught into this playing this pretense as well and, and uh, not talking because doctors have found it very difficult to talk about these issues. And so the end result is that instead of there being... Uh, real openness and honesty in those final days and weeks of life. In fact, everybody's playing this kind of strange game. And and then when the person dies, there's often a feeling of sort of regret. You know, why couldn't we have talked about what was happening? Why couldn't we have shared honestly? Yeah, and once that time has gone, and this is the tragedy, you know, we've talked about this on the previous podcast as well. When you know, We've had loved what you talked about when your father died suddenly, and I talked about my friend Abhishek Banerjee who died suddenly. Once that happens there's no turning back and how much better to to do what we can while while it's still day while there's still time while there's still opportunity and that's what we very much want to explore in this podcast so it is a very positive thing really it is i mean one of the unexpected things about writing this book which i didn't anticipate at all is that several people have found it quite painful because it's brought back memories from the past of people who didn't die well mm. and and people often are feeling you know, if only I'd read this book 10 years ago, this might have helped. And, and so I think the point is we can't change the past, can we? But we can think towards the future and we can say, well, what can we learn for the future? How can we handle this in a better way? So our intention very much in this conversation is to help you, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, to really think about, you know, maybe your own life or the life of a loved one who maybe is literally facing death, um, how to make the most of the days that lie ahead of, for you or for them or but for any of us because again none of us really know what the future really holds so this very much is uh, what we're going to talk about is from chapter five and the first appendix in the book dying well about what does it mean to communicate honestly and as we've just been saying communicating honestly about death and dying is very hard and is very important um and you've talked to us about that john anything else you want to add further on that well, I, th- I think that, you know, if we are caring for somebody who is facing the end of the life, end of life and who is finding it very difficult to talk about these things, then it's helpful. There are certain questions we can ask that will help um, to at least raise the topic, start the conversation. One of the very helpful questions to ask is, to begin with is what is your understanding of this situation? What's your understanding of how what's going on medically? And just leave that as an open-ended question. So it's a very open question to see whatever comes up because you can be surprised. Because yeah. no, I think I think very often you're you are surprised. I mean, we do this as doctors sometimes. We ask people, "What's your understanding of your disease?" And then the question, the answer that comes back is very surprising because that's not medically what 
our perception is. So don't assume that you know what the other person is thinking. Absolutely right. And so just asking that question as a starter allows one to raise these questions. Um, and, and sometimes people will sort of say, well, you know, the doctor hasn't said anything, but I get the feeling that really there isn't any more treatment available for me or something like that. It's just helping to get these subjects out on the table. Yeah, because if it's just in my head, then there's no way I can check that, validate it, actually compare it to see what else is there. It'll just go around and around in my head. Absolutely. And, and sometimes the role of, the, of a friend or a loved one is to act as a sort of intermediate between the doctor and the patient. OK, so the first thing is ask an open question about uh, what are you worried about? What are you concerned about? And give space and time for the person to open up because obviously they may not do that straight away even you may say the question but it still could take a bit of a while absolutely and so you know finding the right time to have these kind of conversations is important you know there's a time and a place there are you know you want to try and make sure that you're in the, in the right kind of setting that there's time that there's privacy that there's quiet so that's preparation, preparation you, yes yeah. and um and then an open-ended question to start. But I think, and then as you say, focusing on, on what are the f things that you are most concerned about? What are you, what are you afraid of? As you look to the future, what are your greatest concerns? Because I think this is important because people often have deep, deep fears which they find it very difficult to, to verbalize. They've sometimes never even really acknowledged that fear to themselves. But just the process of encouraging them to verbalise the fear, to bring it out and put it out on the table in front of us, can help both. It helps the person themselves um, to verbalise it, but also it helps us as we're trying to support and care for them because that's something we can now look at together. Um, so, for instance, for, for quite a lot of people, I think, as they they may realise that they're dying, and the thing that actually terrifies them is there is this belief that they're going to die in terrible agony. They'll be screaming out in pain. They'll be, it'll be torture. There will be in, intolerable agony, and this is a sort of deep, deep fear that people have. Many people have. Um, it's it's a sort of very unrealistic fear. It sometimes comes from sort of um, watching horror films or. Um, garbled conversations of things that people have heard and so on. But I think, so that fear of physical pain is, is sometimes a very real fear. And I think one of the great things that we can say be, because of advances in palliative care and in pain management and so on, that really there is no reason at all why anybody should suffer uncontrollable physical pain at the end of life. And that... Um, the great advances that have come with with pain management and so on, both using uh, powerful medications, uh, but also there are other kinds of techniques, um, all of which can be used to manage and control pain. So much so that specialists in, in palliative care and pain management say that um, it's not that that all physical pain can either be virtually abolished or at least massively controlled so that it becomes a sort of discomfort but it's not agonizing pain so 
this fear about physical pain is something real, but it's something that can be expressed yes. and, and discussed. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit more about different kinds of pain in a moment, but I just want to just, uh, another question just for you to elaborate on, is understanding what the person's dreams and goals are for the particular stage of life they're at in terms of how far their condition is progressing. Yes, yeah, so obviously if people's understanding of how rapidly the process is going will make a, a big difference. Um, and one of the things which I'm afraid seems very common, and that is that both doctors and patients overestimate how much long they've got. So particularly in, in, in progressive conditions like cancer or some other progressive medical conditions, um, it's quite common for doctors to uh, overestimate what life expectancy is. And in fact, I was very struck when I was doing research for the book by coming across one study where they'd compared what the doctor's estimate of life expectancy compared with what had actually happened, and they came to the conclusion that on average, doctors had overestimated life expectancy died by five times. Wow, yeah. um, so in other words, if the doctor thinks that you've probably got six months left, you might actually only have one or two months wow, left. Yeah. And in the same way, patients often overestimate. They think, well, I know that it's going, but, you know, I've probably got a year or two. Yeah. And that can have a real... Things people tend to put off things for the future. And so you de you delay the meaningful conversation because you Absolutely. keep thinking you've got longer than you have. And then what happens is that there's a sudden deterioration. Someone's rushed into hospital. They're critically unwell, and sometimes there's a feeling, well, we've missed the boat. Yeah. And then you've not really had those conversations you really want to have. Uh, so that's in a sense you're un underlining and emphasising the importance of having these conversations as soon as possible. That's right. Not assuming that oh, there's always there'll always be another opportunity. There'll always be, mm, yeah. and I think often relatives and friends are left with feelings of regret. You know, if only, if only I'd mm. grasped. And that's what we're hopefully in this conversation trying to encourage you with. We, it's very much our prayer and our desire that you don't have those feelings of regret, that you feel you've you've said your goodbyes, you've done everything you can, you've forgiveness has to be needed, that that's been sought, that. Um, that there are positive memories of those last days, weeks, months, even years. That's right. And, and actually, the person themselves who's dying often has this feeling of uh, relief that all this stuff which has been bottled inside them at last, they're now able to talk about it openly. So although they may feel uncomfortable to begin with in having this conversation, there's often a great sense of relief and um, even, you know, satisfaction about at last I can talk honestly. Yeah, one, one thought I just want just, just to get your reaction on as well is that uh, I remember reading somewhere about how when doctors and patients talk with each other, a patient who's got, who's got a cancer, is there's an unrealistic expectation of how much the, the say chemotherapy would prolong their life and patients think it might give them another 5-10 years and the doctors think well maybe 6 months or a year and there's this, again it's not communicated correctly and the writer Atul Gawande in um, his book Being Mortal talks about his own father's death and when his father was diagnosed with cancer uh, having a conversation with him and saying well well, dad how do you want to spend the next few months of your life what would you love to do and he said well I'd love to be able to spend time with friends and I'd love to enjoy food and so Atul Gawande who's a, who's a surgeon uh, and a doctor said well then you're not going to have any chemotherapy because if you want to enjoy your food and you want to spend time with friends and family, loved one, and be able to 
say what you want to say and communicate, then you're not going to have any any medication. Uh, and I think that's that show, and that's always done in a very positive way. Absolutely right, and that's why these two things about what are you most worried about, and then what are your dreams, what are your goals, what what are you, those are the two big areas which we need to explore. Uh, in an open way, not rather than saying, you don't want this, do you? Or you want to, I'm sure you'll want this. Rather, we're just exploring in an open way. Because one of the things I've learned is that everybody's different and that what what is very important is one person. Uh, for instance, it must for one person, it's very important that I stay in my home, that I don't want to be admitted to hospital, I don't want to. Another person may say, I don't care about that. I'm really concerned that I get the very best care possible again the best nursing care or whatever so there are different priorities um, and it's for us to explore with people what what what's the most important thing for them yes it's really understanding them we've talked about pain obviously we talked about physical pain earlier on but there are different kinds of pain just to expand that for us because you, you, you say you but there are four kinds of pain that's right so this was one of the great insights from Cicely Saunders who was a pioneer of um, palliative medicine and was a Christian believer and she noticed that although physical pain could be controlled very well, there were still some people who were continued to be incredibly distressed. At And um, she came to the conclusion that if, despite giving enormous amounts of painkillers, the person was still distressed, crying out in pain, then what you can be certain is that this is not a physical pain. But there are other kinds of pain which can cause a great deal of distress. And she came to the conclusion that there was physical pain caused by the cancer, actually, for instance, if it's cancer, invading, pressing on nerves and so on. But then there is psychological pain. So some people are just have their minds filled with deep, deep anguish, um, depression, negative thoughts, feelings of failure, feelings of despair. Uh, so th there's there can be very intense psychological pain. And then there's what she calls social or relational pain. So that sometimes because of broken relationships, particularly close relationships in the family, with children or with relatives. Or, or holding grudges very deeply. These things are causing immense pain when someone comes to the end of their life. They may be saying, you know, I didn't sp I haven't spoken to my son for 20 years. And now I'm going to die, and I'm never going to have the chance to be to be reconciled to my son. And and we can't underestimate how much with the with the mind body connection, how deeply painful that can be. Absolutely, and and it's expressed in, as a physical pain. People sometimes crying out, sometimes weeping and groaning. But actually, the real issue is not physical pain. The real issue there is relational pain. And then there's spiritual pain. So that um, sometimes people just have a deep, deep sense of guilt, uh, of, of sins from the past, which they feel guilty about and which can't be repaid. Uh, they may have a fear. The things they've done wrong in their past that, that they've never actually never yeah. felt forgiveness for or... And maybe the person that they sinned against has died and they can't now ask for forgiveness. Um, there may be f worries about the future, worries about, you know, what happens if I'm going to meet my creator and feelings of, of is this all of the futility of life? You know, was this, my life is about to end and I, I never discovered what it was for. It's just the whole thing was a sort of, 
waste of time. So these four kinds of pain, physical pain, psychological pain, relational pain, and spiritual pain, they all need to be addressed. Um, and, the, and the treatment for physical pain, of course, is physical treatments, painkillers, and so on. The, the, the treatment for psychological pain is, is mainly talking therapy. It's, it's counseling, it's finding ways of expressing the deep thoughts that are in my head. The, the treatment for relational pain is trying to find a way of re reconciling, of bringing the family together. And what Cicely Saunders discovered was that you could track down the son and say, you know, your father is dying and he wants to speak to you. Will you come and be, be reconciled? And so she actually found ways of bringing families together and, and finding reconciliation. And for spiritual pain, uh, the answer is, is the spiritual world of prayer. Yes. And she designed the, um, the hospice. She had this custom-built hospice. She designed it with a chapel in the center and it was designed so that however sick people were in their hospital beds they could be pushed into the chapel yes. and they received the daily right, Eucharist and yes. um, the service there. This is, let me go to a question I was going to ask you later on but I'm going to come to it because you sort of we, we seem to be naturally going in that direction. What are your thoughts in terms of helping someone who has a different faith to the one that you have and obviously we're talking as Christians who believe in the Bible, who believe in the sovereignty of God through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. But caring for someone who doesn't necessarily believe that, um, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, and I, when I was doing the research for the book, several people said to me, you know, this is the most difficult thing. I've been caring for a loved one, but they don't share any of my beliefs, and I feel torn. How can I... What should I be doing? As I'm, I'm, I want to share something about my faith, but I don't want to abuse my... Position. I don't want to pressurize or manipulate. Um, what 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 should I be doing? And I don't. You know, this is a very painful, difficult human question. But I, I think the most important thing is that we carry on caring. Um, we can always tell people that we're praying, and that um, we'd like to pray for them, and we can ask them. You know, would it be all right if I read? bit from the Bible or are there some hymns that you particularly like or finding some kind of contact yes. um, I mean it's not for us to know what's going on in someone else's heart isn't it in the end we don't know I, I think we're called to treat each person with love and with respect uh, in the light of what by God's grace they may become yes. uh, we don't know what God's plans are for each individual um, we don't know what's going on in their heart. I do believe that some people right at the very end can find God in a very deep and sometimes non-verbal way. Mm -hmm. I was very struck by a, um, a poem which comes from the era of when everybody rode horses and it was quite common for people to be killed falling off their horse. Right. And the poem simply said, one of the verses says, between the saddle and the ground he mercy sought and mercy found which means that actually in the process of falling off the horse he was aware of the fact that he needed God's forgiveness 
he prayed for God's forgiveness and he found it before he hit the ground. <laughs> In those sort of milliseconds between, yeah. I thought that was really interesting, isn't it? Because how do you know? You it, could, know. it could be you true. But we're called to love and to care and, yeah, to, to be there for those who are suffering and, and doing that as Christians in Christ's name. Um, well, what could, what could be better? That's right. And I think one of the terrible fears that people have as they face the end of life is the fear of abandonment. Mm. It's the fear that um, actually I might have to face death completely alone, abandoned by other people. And that's a terrible fear. And, you know, nobody deserves to die alone. And I think one of the things we can promise people is that we won't abandon them. We will be there with them right to the end. Whatever happens, I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to be there for you. Um, I like the story about the little girl who's going to bed in the uh, in the dark in her room, and she's quite frightened, and she calls down to her mother, Mummy, Mummy, I'm frightened. Uh, can you come up and cuddle me? And um, her mother says, No, I'm sorry, I can't come and cuddle you, but just remember that God is with you. And, and he'll be there, and he'll be there and look after you. And then there's this long pause, and then down the stairs comes this little plaintive voice. But, Mummy, I need someone with skin on. <laughs> and I think that that's a very profound story, actually, because we are physical beings, we have physical bodies. We need physical arms around us. We need to hear physical words of reassurance. We need human contact. I mean, the same way I think you talk about in the book, Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And the night before he he went to die was also crying out for human company as well. Yes, that's very striking, isn't it? That, that, that here is the Son of God and he's facing the cross and he asks his disciples to just come and be with him. You know, he, he needs that human co- contact in his loneliness and in his anguish. So... Being there for others and just being God's love with skin on. We don't have to have lots of fancy words. We don't have to do great theological mm. and biblical explanations. We just need to be God's love with skin on. Yeah. And maybe to be aware that the person may not be able to articulate that. They may be, but to understand, or how to begin having the conversation, how, how can I best be with you at this time and how can I best support you? That's right. And uh, often music is a very powerful thing. It's interesting how as people lapse into unconsciousness, it's often sound and hearing, which is the last... Hearing and touch are the last senses to go. And therefore, um, being able to to sing, uh, to play music, and uh, to share together in um, in simple acts like that are very significant. One of the interesting things that... A number of people who'd cared for loved ones as they were dying, they told me subsequently that it had been very precious just being able to spend time doing sometimes very ordinary things, Mm. just washing, feeding, cutting people's nails, sharing a story. Mm. Um, You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that our lives are often so busy and pressurised that we don't have time to do these very ordinary simple acts together. And the memories of doing that can stay with you for many, many years. They can be very positive. I think it's like you're leaving a legacy of positive memories, which is something... And people day, they look, say, they look back and they say, yes, 
you know, I still remember just doing that simple act of feeding, caring. Um, those things are very precious. And one person said, I wanted my mother's life to be as filled with love. Her last minutes of her life would be so filled with love in the same way that she filled the first oh. minutes of my life. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Let's, um, we haven't talked about actually advanced care planning um, and discussing that and talking about that and the, and the whole issue around uh, do not resuscitate. Do you want to just say a few words about that? Because that's often on people's minds as well. Yeah, so the whole approach of modern medical care is that as much as possible, everyone should have some kind of advanced care plan of how they would like to die um, and what the issues are important to them. And this is something that the NHS is is strongly uh, promoting in the UK, and it's an idea which is present for health systems around the world. What this means is that we need to write down in advance and discuss with our loved ones what things we would like at the end of life, what are really important to us. Um, and that would include things like what would happen, whether we wish to be resuscitated if we have a cardiac arrest, um, and um, whether there are certain treatments that we specifically don't want, say we don't want to have. Um, I think one of the most helpful things is to, is to write down a statement of values and wishes uh, and, and actually, at the end of my book, I've put a sort of simple pro forma version of what someone might write as a statement of values and wishes. And um, I, this is a, just a way of saying both to, to medical professionals and nursing professionals and to your own relatives, these are the things that are important to me. These are the things that I would want. Uh, I would want, for instance, maybe someone... I'd want to make sure that my family were able to visit me and be with me. I would want someone from the church a pastor or the following people to be able to come and pray with me uh, it's very important to me that these things happen you know so whatever it is the things that are really important to us we should actually write them down and this should then be part of the patient records because it means that when if you are admitted to hospital or something happens and and you're you're suddenly deteriorating and you're not able to speak for yourself they're written down are your your values yes that can be very very important i can see that and you you've given that in appendix four which is a sample statement of wishes and values for for you for a christian believer you said there but i think that'll be helpful for anybody really as well yes i think i think again we're all individuals we all have things which are important to us and and therefore trying to find and express the things which which matter most to you um I think is really important. And, you know, there are some words which we might want to say when we're actually saying goodbye. Mm. Words like, thank you for this, making a list of the things that you want to thank the person for. Please forgive me. I'm praying for you. I love you. I forgive you and God forgives you through the death of Christ. Sometimes, you know, people who are burdened by a sense of guilt it's actually helpful for them just to actually express yeah. and make some, a confession um, because there there is real both psychological and spiritual value in people talking about the things that they feel guilty about and that um, they wish to be forgiven for. Yeah. And um, asking people, is there anything you'd like to say to me? 
um, because I think the last words, the people that yes. are very important. Yes. It's again something that we've lost in our culture. Yeah. And which again can, can be, we can carry, the recipient can carry for the rest of their lives as well. Absolutely. I mean, it was one of the things I felt was very painful when my father died suddenly and very, without any warning. And I just got the news that he was dead. Um, I felt robbed that I hadn't had that opportunity, both of saying these words to him about saying how much I loved him, how much I thanked him for the way he'd uh, led me and guided me over the years and cared for me. But also, I know that if my father had said to me, well, but, you know, before I die, these are the things I want you to remember, mm. I would never have forgotten that. Yeah. It would that, yeah. that would have meant a great deal. So actually, the dying person has a kind of spiritual authority. It's like because they are in this unique position of coming to the end of their life, they have some kind of ability to, to their words carry weight in a way that isn't yes. true in the rest of life. Yeah. And it goes back to, again, this strange kind of adventure that we are all on and that this life has, has great meaning and significance and importance. And living in the light of the fact of our mortality does not have to be morbid at all, but actually can be incredibly liberating, uh, especially as we understand God's goodness and love to us ultimately in Christ and what he's done for us. But ultimately what that means in the practicality of, of my life, of the good, the bad and the ugly, of the way things have gone, so that we can say goodbye in a way that is actually very positive and very meaningful. I think that's right, and it's not—it's not easy. These conversations, these times, are are not straightforward, but they can be very precious. They can be very significant, and both helping the person themselves who's dying, but also leaving these memories, this legacy of a way of of saying yes, that was a precious time, and I was part of it, and I'm never going to forget uh, those words together. Well, thank you, John. That's, a, again, a very important, rich and and deep subject. A any final thoughts? Well, just maybe the, um, I think a prayer, which I've had the privilege of praying with somebody who's dying, um, and which means a lot to me, and which many, many people down through the centuries have used, is that great prayer that comes in uh, the Aaron's blessing. Um and they're very familiar words, but I think, you know, as we say those words, as we pray those words, I'm very conscious of the fact that we're actually joining with a faithful community of believers that stretches back through the ages. And, and these words are, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you very much, John. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme this is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life 
in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.